Uh, great stuff. Thank you so much, Alicia and worship team. Uh, so great to sing with you all and be, uh, be led that way. Um, you may or may not know, but in February of 2016, that is this February, Time Magazine released a study that indicated that the reason that 85% of college freshmen go to school, go to college, is so that they can get a better job. Isn't that profound? I just thought you would want to know that as we start things off this morning. Now, you may wonder, well, what else would there be? Well, the other what there would be would be partying, would be because my friends are going, or because I want to go into debt would also be another option, all right? Now, the even more meaningful statistic from Time Magazine's release is this about incoming college freshmen, that 82% of college freshmen said being very well off financially is essential or very important. That's something different. Now, it's even more interesting that this number changed because in 1967, that percentage was 41 by Time Magazine as well. So their comparative longitudinal study, if you will, shows a shift and a change in incoming college freshmen going to school for reasons that say we want to make sure that we're making enough money. Now, if you would if I could have a conversation with you one-on-one, we might also say that there's a lot of people who don't go to college, and I might argue that one of the reasons I hear why people don't go to college is because I will make more money if I don't go to college. You heard that one too? Like, I'm, and that's a fair argument. In other words, I won't go into debt, therefore if I start earning now, I won't have the debt burden, I'll have about four, whatever, six, eight, ten years head start, and I won't even be in debt, and I'll make more money. That college or non-college alike... At the young adult level, they share this in common. You have no money. And the plan is, how do I get it? How do I get it? Like, how do I go from zero to whatever hero of money in a hurry? How do I go there? And here's why Mark Twain, tongue cheek, said this. He said, lack of money is the root of all evil. It's Mark Twain. The lack of money is root of all evil. We've seen this grow in people to do all kinds of crazy things in order to get money, in order to get things. Miss family, change their priorities, make decisions that later on they regret, and they're like, why did I do that? I ruined relationships, burned bridges, was foolish in my attempt to get, like, why do I do this? It's the root of all kinds of evil. That's the way Mark Twain put it. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, we have to address this issue in, in all of us. Like, what do we do with this desire that we have inside of us to experience life to the full? Because that's what I think is behind this. Because I think that God has put this desire in us to experience a fullness of life, our best answer that we know, that we default into, it's like we go to the beach, if you will, and you go into the water and you know how it works. The tide will take you somewhere, and because you're smart and you're not going to get taken by the tide, you locate a fixed object on shore, whether it's the umbrella or the hotel or whatever, and you know, uh uh-huh, the tide will take me there. I need to orient to that and come back. When you step into the tide of life, the tide will take you toward you need to make money. You need to make enough money because the only way to experience a fullness of life is to have enough money to do that. Because how can you post good Instagram pictures if you don't travel? Like You need money to do that, and so you need to be able to post things that look awesome, but you can't do that without money, so you need to get it, and you just step into the tide, and the current carries you along. And somewhere along the way, I might ask the question, 
What are we oriented toward that holds us on center so that the tide doesn't carry us toward a life that actually might be meaningless rather than meaningful? And I might suggest this morning, here's what I want to do. I want to present to you an alternative vision. I think the reason that we chase after money the way that we do is because we don't have a better plan for how to get after the best stuff of life. There's no better, clear alternative for how we should spend our energy. And so we just walk into the water and the tide carries us. And here's what I think we already know, and that is this, that rich people actually don't impress us. Generous people impress us. Right? Like, rich people don't impress you, kind of, for a couple minutes. It's actually the people who've impressed you, made a deep impression on your heart, have not been rich people, but have been generous people. And sometimes the two go hand in hand, that's fine. But it's the generousness of your rich uncle that impresses you, not the richness of your rich uncle that impresses you, right? It's how good and kind they have been, because this is the reality of generosity versus wealth, that generosity always outperforms wealth. Generosity always outperforms wealth. This is why even at this season that we have Christmas carols that are sung to some guy named Jolly Old Saint what? Nicholas. Who in the world was that? Anyone know how much money he had? But does anyone know how generous he was? Like the legacy of generosity carries for generation upon generation upon generation. The legacy of wealth accumulation is almost good for nothing. But yet that's the tide that we step into when we walk into life. And I want to give you a different vision of what could be in this series that we are calling Christmas in Grinchland. If you were here with us last week, you know that the orientation already that this series is really about looking at this world as Grinchland, as if after the fall of man, Christians believe that Adam um, and Eve sinned in the garden. And I argued last week that in that sin, our hearts shrunk in size like the Grinch. And we have become less human because of the fall of man on us. We've become less human. There's always this drawback, especially at Christmas time, to something more, to a generosity. And I likened the stage up here to the Garden of Eden that we were created for. And at Christmas time, when we give to one another, there's a, a pullback. It feels good to give. It feels good to see the, the life and joy that kids get, especially from getting our gifts. And I said, listen, what if that's actually how we're meant to be all the time? All the time. And so last week we talked about the heart, and this week I want to talk about our vision and what we see. And I want to take you to a passage of Scripture that I'll invite you to in a minute. But I want you to know this, that I think the most influential man who ever walked the planet never owned a home and didn't have a retirement account. In fact, he would say, the foxes have their holes and the birds of the air have their nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. I've got no retirement to pass on to the next generation. I've got no wealth accumulation here, but you and I still talk about this man, Jesus, today. Rich in generosity toward us. He had several followers, a lot of followers, who, who wrote a lot of things down. One of those followers was Paul, the Apostle Paul, a very passionate man. Uh, Paul uh, came from a, a history and a background in which he was trained to be uh, a Pharisee, a religious leader and ruler. And Paul wrote a little letter to a young man named Timothy. Timothy was a leader in the early church. And he wrote to Timothy, 
And he wanted to give him instructions for the church on how the church, this newly, it's not even a church as we would know it here, but more of a congregating group of people, believers, who were just starting to say, I think, I think Jesus was actually the Messiah. Now, as we believe that and we share that, now what do we do and how do we operate and how do we function? And in that culture in which Paul is writing to Timothy, there were certain social norms and socioeconomic rules that impacted how people related to each other. If you were wealthy, you interacted with the middle class or lower class in certain ways. And one of those big ways was we talk about a patron relationship that the upper class had with the lower class. And if you were wealthy, you would essentially host, you would host um, parties, you would uh, host, uh, be a host essentially for the needs of certain people, benefactors in your community. And so if I were in upper class and you were not, or flip it around the other way around, doesn't matter, but if I were in upper class, I, I might host you. You might have a relationship with me if you were in lower class in which you would come to my place and I provide needs for you. I might buy your couch. You need a couch? No problem. Come see me. You need to have a place to gather for the holidays. Hey, everybody around us is going somewhere. They're going to ask you where you're going. You can say you're going to go to my place. Come to my place. Now, here's what I want from you. I want some advertisement. I want some on-the-ground social media. I want you to tell people around you how good I've been to you because I want them to come to my business. And this is how we, it works, okay? Like, you come to me, I help you, and you help me. But we're different. I have wealth and you don't. And in that, all of a sudden, these people are coming to Jesus. They have to figure out, how do we work now? If the ground is level, as they say, at the cross, if there's no longer slave nor Jew, Greek, uh, <laughs> slave nor free, uh, Jew nor Greek, but the ground is level at the cross, how do people of different socioeconomic groups relate? What does that look like? And this is where Paul writes to Timothy in pretty strong words. And he writes that in the book of 1 Timothy. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to this little letter called 1 Timothy. It's in the second half of your Bible, really the last third of your Bible. Um, did I say 2 Timothy? I meant 1 Timothy. I said 2. 1 Timothy chapter 6 is where we're going to be. Uh, by the way, there's a Bible in the pew around you. If you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you here this morning. But 1 Timothy chapter 6, and Paul is writing to Timothy to have him take his instruction to the people who are trying to figure out how to get along in this new thing that's growing called the church. And he says in verse, we're going to read verses 17 to 19. I'm going to pause through them just to try to make a couple of points. But first Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. Paul writes there to Timothy, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so, what's that next word? Uncertain. I'm reading from the NIV, so you may not have that, but here's what that says. That is so uncertain. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant and to put their hope in wealth, which is so, would you use that word? <laughs> like, my experience doesn't make this true. Actually, Paul, wealth is about the most certain thing that I would know. Paul, my bills come every month. Do yours? Taxes seem to roll around with alarming regularity. I seem to need to be able to pay for the things that are a part of this life, right? Like, Paul, wealth isn't uncertain. It's very certain. 
I need that in order to take care of this. I don't know why you're choosing this word, but this isn't true in my experience. Right? But that's what he says. He said, command, don't encourage, command. Those who are rich in this present world, don't be arrogant or to put your hope in wealth, which is so. And then he jolts us with a thing. It is so uncertain. The thing that seems actually so certain that you hold for and you pull for and work for, that thing actually is uncertain. Then he contrasts it. Look in the verse. He contrasts it immediately with something else. But to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. (laughs) There couldn't be anything further from the normal expectation here. This is so ironic a verse. In other words, he's saying, um, Timothy, let me remind you, tell the people, the money is uncertain. God who is invisible and often silent and sometimes feels distant, you can count on that. And put your hope over there. I know you can see the money and you could hold the money and you pay for things and you eat things because you give people the money. Don't count on that. Put your hope in the thing you can't see, the thing that's invisible, the thing that feels silent and distant. Trust me. Command it. Wow. It's a game changer. This is what Paul says, command those to recognize where you put your hope first. Not in wealth, which is so, and he says it's uncertain, but to put their hope in God. And look at the character. Here's what's so important. Look at the character of God as he describes it in verse 17. Put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our miserableness. But isn't that how it feels sometimes? Isn't that how it feels sometimes? That if, man, if I were really to give my heart over to God fully, doesn't that mean like I have to be miserable? Kind of grouchy sometimes. Like not really enjoying the fullness of life. I mean, I know people who are super spiritual and they just hardly ever smile and laugh and seem to enjoy life. But here's Paul saying, just to remind the people, when you put your hope in God, you're putting your hope in a God whose character is like, I'm for your enjoyment of life. I'm, I'm for your interest in this. Trust me, this will be better than the uncertainty of the wealth that you have. And he goes on with another command in verse 17, verse 18. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. This is the answer to the question, okay, Paul, if I'm going to command these people to put their hope in God, what does that mean? Do I just say, hey, this is about mental assent, just agreeing to it? Like, What does it mean to actually put your hope in God? And here's what he says. Here's what it means. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Do things for others. Be rich toward others others. Be extremely generous. Be extremely kind. Command them to do good. This is how it is pressed out. And then look what they say, what he says in verse 19. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. And then look at the last part of the verse. So that, and here's the purpose, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Like, Timothy, I want you to command these people who are rich to make sure that they get the fullness of life. I want them to take hold of the life that is truly life. I want them to experience at the end of their life all that God has designed them for. And the only way to get to that 
is to command them to be rich in good deeds. To be generous and willing to share. And to put their hope in a benevolent, loving Father who richly provides everything for their enjoyment. But whatever they do, Timothy, command them not to get into the water and let the tide carry them. To put their trust in riches. Whatever they do, don't let them do that. Because they will not get the life that is truly life. They will get washed away. Yeah. As a Christian, I have to wrestle with a lot of what the Bible says about this. The Bible deals with this not just here in 1 Timothy, but in several other places. In fact, it's so significant that I actually wanted to show you how many times this same theme shows up throughout Jesus' teaching and in the Old Testament. Because, and here's why I'm doing this. Because there is a, a weight to this, biblically, that if you call yourself a Christian and you're trying to say, yeah, I believe in the Bible, believe in Jesus and all that, if you, that's where you're at. We're going to have to wrestle this one to the ground. That this view of generosity is actually what is taught throughout the Bible strongly. Lovingly, yes, but strongly. So check out this. Here's what Jesus says in Luke. He's speaking to a crowd, and, he's, and the, someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, it's like, Mom, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? And then he said to them, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then Jesus goes on to tell the story that many of you know. And he said, there was a ground of a certain rich man who, who had the, the ground growing well. The crops were producing. And he said, you know what? My little barns aren't good enough. What am I going to do with all this abundance that I have? I know what I'll do. I'll build bigger barns so I can hold more of my crop. And then I can take it easy. I will... Eat, drink, and be merry. That's, what, that's where we get that from, from Jesus' teaching. And then later on, Jesus tells the story. He finishes by saying, God's assessment of it is, you fool. Tonight, this very, this very night, your life will be demanded from you, and all that you have will be wasted. And here's what Jesus concludes on that. He said, this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. What a waste. What a waste. What a waste of a life to take the abundance of things and store it up for yourself. Man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus teaches the same thing. Similarly, he says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. In other words, your heart follows your treasure. So you put your treasure somewhere, your heart is going to follow it. And so you put your heart toward the things in this world that's going to follow it there. Where your heart, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This teaching comes off the Old Testament. Check it out here in Proverbs. Proverbs 11, 24, and 25. One man gives freely, yet gains even more. That's odd. He's giving freely, but he gains even more. Another withholds unduly but comes to poverty. That should be the other way around. If I'm withholding my resources, I shouldn't come to poverty. I should be planned. 
Not so. A generous man will prosper. He who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. Another place in Proverbs, we read this in 3, 9, and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim with new wine. In Proverbs chapter 22, verse 9, a generous man will himself be blessed, for he shares his food with the poor. And finally, coming back to Jesus here in Luke chapter 6 and verse 38, give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap, for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Over and over and over and over and over again in the Bible, there is this constant refrain to be rich in good deeds, to be generous but not simply to get rich. And so we have to ask this question. So what? So what? I ask this all the time around here. You may know that by now. And here's what I want to say in the so what. I want to say two things. Number one, I want to say this to us as a church, all right? globally now, right? as a church body. Um, we want to live this out and flesh this out as a church. And I want to talk to us individually. But as a church, um, we have been... You may have noticed, if you've been tracking with us and, and you've been here for a little while, uh, you may have noticed this year we have been financially blessed beyond normal. And we recognize that. And so one of the things that we want to do at the end of this year, and you'll see this uh, as a piece of paper that will show up on the Welcome Center on the way out here today, we're going to kind of take a, a cue from history. There used to be a time at, at this church when, when the last Sunday of the year we would give away the entirety of the offering for that morning. And that's what we're going to do again this year. On December 25, the entirety of our morning offering will be going outside of these walls. Not, not even any administrative fees. I mean, we're talking 100% gone, okay? The missions team has vetted several different ideas, and these ideas are on here, represent how we'd like to give from this church everything that comes in that morning. We're going to be, hopefully, giving to... Dominican Education, the Burkina Faso Road Repair Plan, some work within the factory, our missionaries Bobby and Michelle Law, and then directly to Peckway Valley students in need. It's explained in here what that is, but I want you to know that, that as a church, we want that rhythm to be normal for us. We say here at the GPC that ministry comes before the money. Money doesn't come before the ministry. If it's the other way around, we get paralyzed. Ministry comes before the money, and we have been great we have been, I am grateful, we are grateful for the giving to this point, and we want to keep moving that out. And I'll also say this, I feel great freedom teaching a series on generosity when zero part of my application will be, please give more to our hurting general fund. I don't feel that way. So I want you to know, like, when I'm speaking on this series on generosity, it isn't because I'm asking you to give more to the church. Because, like I said last week, I don't want you to grow old and crusty. I don't want you to get to the end of your life and be like, man, I wish I would have been more open with my stuff. And I think the way to get a hold of life that is truly life is actually to risk being courageous with generosity. Now, I can push it personally here. If you can remember this, it would be great. Getting generouser is smarter than getting richer. Okay? Getting generouser is smarter than getting richer. 
that if you can like remember nothing else, just pull that out and run with it and allow that to filter out of your vision. That as you think about your vision for your life, actually getting more generous is smarter than getting more rich. That didn't sound as good as generous or richer, so I went that way, right? Getting generouser is smarter than getting richer. We have to change our vision from how rich can I get to how rich can I be. We have to change that vision from how rich can I get to how rich can I be. And when Paul is writing to Timothy and to the early church, he's saying, I want you to be super rich. But can we please change the currency to something that actually matters? Can we please change that currency to being rich in good deeds? Can we please change that currency to being rich in generosity? Can we please change that currency to being generous with your time? Because that actually matters. Rich people don't impress us. Generous people impress us. Now, with that being said, I want to share a story with you in video form up here that lays out this very thing. Two people from this church who have walked through some things that you have helped and been generous toward. So let's listen to Ben and Mo share their story. Hi, my name is Ben and this is Mo. Um, and this is Karina and Caleb. We were trying to have kids, weren't experiencing any luck, and ended up having two miscarriages, um, which was just very challenging and heartbreaking for us both. We felt a lot of love and support from the church through that, but it was still a very difficult experience. Mm-hmm. to the point where we weren't sure if we'd be able to have kids by um, It seemed like everyone around us was getting pregnant and having children. We were happy for them, but at the same time, it was just really hard for us, and we, we doubted that um, we would ever have kids. We started pursuing foster care. Well, God had been working in our hearts for a while, and um, we had decided, Mo had, had wanted to adopt for a while, and we had decided one Sunday morning that we would pursue foster care as an option to foster to adopt. And then the week before our last class, we found out that Mo was pregnant again. And we were not excited. No. Not at all. We had been pregnant before, and all we ever knew of being pregnant was just being heartbroken. And so we scheduled an ultrasound for week seven into that pregnancy to see if it was just another miscarriage. And the tech showed us the screen and I saw a sack with something in it and I knew right away that there was a baby in there. The text is like, well just wait. And we're just like, wait, wait for what? <laughs> She's like, there's two of them. And that's been our mantra ever since. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just kind of dumbfounded. Yeah. Like, are you kidding me? There's two of them. That's right. Jumping right into parenting with two babies, two newborns at once. Um, and it is definitely a lot of work, um, but there have been so many people who have volunteered to come over and spend time and fold babies or do random things around the house like cook or clean. There have been a few people who have called us from the grocery store and said, hey, I'm here, what do you need? Um, it has been huge to us. We've had a couple people who volunteered to spend the night with us, which was just amazing like there's a thing called sleep so we are incredibly thankful we don't know how we could have done this without without grace point yeah you guys are our family mm-hmm. so 
these babies, um, you know, people say it takes a village. It sure does. And you guys are living proof that, um, I don't know what I'm saying. Yeah. It's, what am I saying? It's true. It's true. <laughs> it's true. They say it takes a village and it's true. <laughs>